News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. More riveting prime time testimony from the committee investigating the events of January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. Let's get straight into the details now with our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, who is with us. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what was some of the most compelling testimony that we heard yesterday? I think it's hard to pinpoint one uh, one thing that may be the most compelling. I think the parcel as a whole was some of the most compelling uh, testimony uh, or hearings that we have seen since these began in June because they really did highlight not only what was going on inside the White House, but they went beyond this moment of saying that Donald Trump failed to stop the protesters uh, from being inside the U.S. Capitol or carrying out further destruction. And instead, this entire hearing said that this was Donald Trump's choice to allow this to continue and whether... It was the video uh, outtakes of him trying to, uh, you know, push back on the violence without calling out the election loss, whether it was listening to two former Republican members of the Trump administration corroborate not only previous testimony, but also that President Trump was resistant to do anything about this. This really was an entire uh, moment of watching this hearing or watching this committee rather sum up its case against the president. Right. And they're focused on what he was doing, right? In that whatever it was, 147 minutes? 187, 187 minutes, which is three hours and seven minutes. And, and the focus really was what wasn't Donald Trump doing? Because we heard from White House counsel Pat Cipollone when he was asked by uh, Republican Liz Cheney, who in the office, who in the White House wanted this to stop? And he literally named every single person that was in and around the president's administration. And then when the question was asked, did the president want this to stop? Pat Cipollone turned to his lawyer and then uh, exerted executive privilege or asserted executive privilege, uh, meaning that he couldn't say that Donald Trump didn't want this to stop. This was um, this was, you know, a two hour hearing last night that touched on three hours and seven minutes of Donald Trump watching Fox News gleefully because he felt that this was a just cause. Right. And from what I understand as well, listening to this, there were absolutely he made no calls for help, like was was watching everything unfold but didn't actually call for any kind of assistance or concern about what was happening in the Capitol. Yeah, and we've heard this before in previous testimony, and we watched that play out. We knew that that was the case on January 6, 2021. Not only were members of his own administration saying, look, you need to call somebody at the Pentagon. You need to call somebody at FBI to get this under control. And he was resistant to do that. The mayor of the District of Columbia, who doesn't have access to the National Guard like other governors do, she was also asking for this to happen, and he was pushing back on that. But I think going beyond this, you know, Donald Trump refusing to call for uh, some kind of backup to deal with the protesters was the fact that he wasn't calling people that were inside the U.S. Capitol, namely his vice president, namely the leaders of the Republican parties at the time, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. None of them were getting phone calls from the president to ensure their safety. They were instead calling him saying, you need to do something about this. That is a remarkable moment to hear from these moment, from these committee hearings. The other remarkable moment that I thought as well was they were showing the video, kind of the outtakes, I guess, or the attempts to film the video where he eventually tells the people to go home. And this was not somebody who was happy about doing that. No. Well, look, there were two videos that, that we saw outtakes from. Number one, he, he was struggling to tell people to go home. He did not want to use the word uh, 
peace or peaceful. That was something that his daughter was trying to get him to say on day one, on January 6th, and he was struggling to do that. Uh, but it was the second video, Simi. It was the day after January 6th when the president was trying to distance himself from these protesters, and we heard the president say that he did not want to say that there would be trouble for them. He did not want to have to say that they broke the law. We heard him say that he wasn't able to say words like yesterday because that was a difficult word for him to say, but we also heard him say, I don't want to say the election was over. Even though the election had been over for months at that point, he did not want to um, to accept loss. And I think that that outtake video, Simi, is going to be what sets Donald Trump off the most because he is vain. And that is going to show him acting foolish. That is what's going to catch mm-hmm. his attention. Okay. And there's more coming, right? That was something that we heard from uh, Liz Cheney. There is more coming. This was kind of the the season finale for the summer round of hearings before they go on the August break. Uh, And they expect that there will be more hearings starting in September, leading to a kind of smaller report that will ultimately result in a much larger report. Uh, and, And this could continue. Democrats are running out of time. They risk losing power in November, so they need to have this wrapped up by uh, the midterms. Then they could leave it in the hands of the Department of Justice, who could carry on this investigation. But ultimately, what we saw last night was breathtaking. That included those moments of Secret Service agents calling family members to say that could be the end, because that's how much they feared what was going on. This was a blockbuster final for these hearings. Right. I was going to ask you about that, too. So that was just shocking to think that the Secret Service were so concerned at that point that they were calling their family. Yeah, I mean, I think that this this kind of puts more emphasis now on these deleted Secret Service text messages from in and around the 5th, the 6th and the 7th, because there is now pertinent information that Secret Service were going back and forth with each other, asking either people on the other end to call their families and say goodbye because they didn't know if this was going to be the final day for them. But also there were the conversations that they were unclear if they would be able to get the vice president safely and securely out of the Senate chamber to a secure location and without that information without those text messages now only hearing this now through other secret service agents this raises so many more questions worth pointing out there's a criminal investigation now to try and get to the bottom of these deleted messages okay and one final thing here what was going on with josh hawley uh because there was a lot of uh, criticism of him yesterday you know because he was shown kind of you know raising his hand in support to Um, these protesters at the beginning in the morning and then not so much it turns out later in the day. Yeah, I mean, look, Josh Hawley made money off of that fist bump outside of the U.S. Capitol, putting it on merchandise. And here the the, the committee showed last night he was amongst the the members of the Republican Party that were seen fleeing the building, running through the hallways, running down towards the Capitol Hill subway to get out of the complex. Uh, And I think they used that just as a moment to show, look, while the president was saying, uh, don't stop doing this because the election was uh, stolen, you had people like Josh Hawley actively trying to overthrow the results, trying to send those electorates back to the state trying to say this was a just cause and then when things got bad he ran out but tried to do so quietly this was a moment not to embarrass the president it was to embarrass members of the republican party so the democrats potentially can use that as a bonus not only this year but also in 24 oh boy it really was something uh, reggie thank you 
Thank you. Tredi Cicchini, our global Washington correspondent. Yes, there will be more of those hearings likely to continue in September. Well, we just had a traffic report of what's going on out there this morning, but I got to tell you, heading into the weekend, it is looking busy out there. This is not a surprise to anybody who does any amount of driving around in Metro Vancouver. Right now, feels like road construction, those construction projects are at their peak. Everywhere you turn, everywhere you go, there is something there preventing you from, you know, getting to where you want to go in a timely fashion. So we thought heading into the weekend here, and it is going to be beautiful out there, so there'll be a lot of people out on the roads. Some things that we we thought we'd go over, some things to remember when you're going out there. Our CKNW community contributor, Eric Chapman, got some help from AM730 to talk about traffic if you are thinking about hitting the road this weekend. Ian Hardiker, um, knower of all things traffic. We should probably look at making sure we have a lot of water and things like that in the car, shouldn't we, for doing some summer traveling? Definitely not a bad idea. Definitely not a bad idea to have a supply of water, to have maybe a few snacks and stuff. One of the things that can often happen if you happen to be out of town is you'll get stuck in a like a road work zone sometimes. And sometimes you might end up being there for maybe 20, 30 minutes and not really making a whole lot of headway at all. And it can really, really uh, put a damper on your summer travel plans. So it's good to have, you know, a little bit of supplies to tide you over if you're kind of between stops. Yeah, because uh, I'm remembering back to in May of this year, Ian Hardaker, no of all things traffic. Not nine <laughs> hours it took me to get from Kamloops to Vancouver because of traffic. My goodness. Yeah, there was landslides and everything was over. There was no Dixie Chicks playing, but I was living it. <laughs> let me tell you. So yes, I think it's important to, you know, plan ahead when you're, tra- even in the summer when it's nice. So I just wanted to mention that. So absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, it's sort of the double-edged sword. We get that nice summer weather. That's when the crew's got to be out there doing the work on the highways. You know, they, they work long hours early in the morning to late at night to make the most of the good weather. And of course, that's when everybody's taking those out of town highways to go traveling and, uh, and have lots of fun. So it's uh, kind of one of those things. If you, if you want to head out of town for the weekend, it's just one of those things you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Okay. If we are headed out of town, the most important thing you got to worry about actually is more just expect that there is going to be a lot of extra traffic on the roads heading east through the Fraser Valley on Highway 1. Uh, through Langley and Abbotsford especially, it can get really, really uh, congested, especially kind of from, you know, 9 30 10 o'clock in the morning until 2 3 in the afternoon and then from then on you get the kind of typical afternoon traffic rush there so it's it's mainly about highway one you might get highway seven out through uh, maple ridge and mission some areas there too where it gets kind of busy as people are heading out of town during those hours certainly like late morning uh and then early into mid-afternoon you're always going to see a lot of volume on those routes as people are, are trying to get to hope and then beyond to the out-of-town highways Okay, what about ferries? I, I've seen horrible stories about there's not even anybody to work on the ferries. Is there anything that we should heads up on that too? Yeah, absolutely. There uh, have been some cancellations for this weekend. Unfortunately, BC Ferries still understaffed. Um, because of that, uh, you know, they are not able to run a full complement of sailing. So what that means is it is going to be extra waiting times in between sailings. I mean, they do their best to compensate, but uh, it's it, the name of the game is it's busy and uh, the, the demand is high and they just don't have enough personnel uh, who are fully trained up to um, to be able to, to handle the demand. So it, it is going to be a busy one. There are going to be sailing waits um, and cancellations this weekend. The number one thing you can do to make your time at the traffic uh, or the number one thing you can do to make your, your uh, life easier if you're taking the ferries is just book your spot ahead of time. And, you know, it, if, if you're waiting until Friday, 
probably too late. So it might be too late to help people, but certainly, you know, for that trip back on a Sunday or a Monday, you want to make sure that you are uh, booked up preferably several days in advance. And that'll make sure you ensure your spot on a, on a, um, on a ferry and you don't end up having to wait for like five or six hours for multiple sailing waits, you know, when uh, things get really busy at the ferries. Okay. So we are anticipating a pretty busy weekend on the roads and for the ferries. So good advice there. And also when it comes to some big construction projects that are going on, there's a bunch of reminders for if you're going to be driving around the lower mainland, there's um, Cedar Drive upgrades in Coquitlam on Como Lake Avenue. They're doing a big repaving project there, Clark Road to Mariner Way. Uh, there's Victoria Drive they, in Vancouver. They've got um, a storm diversion a sewer project that is also being undertaken. So lots of different projects around. Really the best thing to do is either A, listen to AM730 and us, or you can also check out your local municipality's road construction uh, project page there and find out where the big projects are. It does feel like I can't go anywhere right now uh, without running into some kind of delay due to construction, paving, you name it. There's a ton of that stuff going on. So be careful out there. We are all faced with a lot of challenges these days, whether it's, you know, provincially or across the country. Well, the BC Care Providers has written a piece talking about what they feel are the two biggest kind of existential threats to the country. And they say climate change and an aging demographic. Let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Mike Klassen, Vice President of Public Affairs for the BC Care Providers Association. Mike, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Simi. So what made the care providers decide to put this discussion out there? In January of 2020, so just at the very beginning of this decade, uh, RBC Thought Leadership, which is their, uh, is a think tank uh, that the bank runs, uh, the chief economist runs, put out this great report called Navigating the 2020s and what are the, the key things that are uh, Canada needs to face. And of course, this came out just a couple of months before a global pandemic hit. And, and I think some of the information in it, which was very valuable, was lost. So we're, we kind of brought it back forward and we said, you know, when we first saw the report, we thought, gosh, you know, people are starting to understand what we've been seeing and talking about for a long time is that our aging society poses a, a genuine threat to, uh, the, to our system just from the sheer amount of resources that it will take uh, to look after our uh, older adults in Canada. So, so is, um, is that message yeah. being heated, do you think? You know, I have been on Parliament Hill. I've been in Victoria. I've talked to a lot of uh, elected officials. I've spoken to a lot of uh, policymakers. And I like to think they're listening, but I think that the proof is in the pudding. We're still really behind, and we need a lot more effort and to lean in on this. What kind of effort? What do you think it would take? Well, um, we uh, clearly need to have uh, a lot more investment into the kinds of systems and the care that we're going to need for uh, for the uh, what's coming, which is a, a, a massive surge of the baby boom becoming um, uh, requiring more healthcare services. To to give you an example, um, according to the Conference Board of Canada, we're going to need up to thirty thousand new long term care beds in the next twenty years in British Columbia. Since 2017, we have put out tenders for approximately 800 of those, and we've only, and about 600 of them, haven't had uh, shovels in the ground yet. And it takes uh, several years to build a care home. So it takes up to five years to build a long-term care bed before it's occupied. So we're talking 2027. We've only got those 600 beds on stream. Uh, we're going to need thousands more. So those kinds of investments we're not, not dealing with at all. And then we're going to need another 
almost 20,000 people to staff those beds. Right now we're facing staffing shortages. And while there's been some good work done, um, both provincially and federally, to start looking more seriously at giving uh, accreditation for uh, foreign uh, trained workers, um, we have a lot more people that need to get into the system. Mike, what is going on? Because like I can think back, you know, decades and we've been talking about this silver tsunami, right? Coming our way. We knew that with the baby boomers getting older, this was going to happen. We knew, but it doesn't sound like we've been adequately preparing, even though we've known all along. You know, I think that it really has, the message has been lost somehow. And I, and I, I hate to, to depend on one thing, but partly it's due to ageism. I think that this is the one uh, sort of discriminatory um, thing that people still seem to have some patience for. And it's really quite shameful. Um, I think policymakers are not realizing that these investments ultimately will help families. I mean, uh, you know, we're seeing um, a dip in the, in the economy, partly due to people needing to take time off to deal with uh, older family members, uh, you know, having to uh, go into their vacation time so they can make sure that, you know, mom or dad gets to a medical appointment. You know, I think that we just have not really got the message yet. And so uh, it's uh, pieces like these will hopefully uh, bring some attention to it. But, um, you know, we are, um, uh, you know, kind of being dealt with uh, with climate change issues. And we've been talking about the heat dome and the the rising temperatures all week. Um, We saw what the flooding did last fall. You know, there's some harrowing stories of evacuations that needed to happen because of the wildfires and, you know, uh, uh, you know um, elderly people in wheelchairs and being moved out of care homes um, in the interior last summer, um, spending 24 hours trying to get to a place where they could breathe. So um, climate change is real and, and the, 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 the amount of effort that we need to lean in and, and to, to start building these beds and improving these beds is, is, is absolutely critical. Um, did we learn anything, would you say, during the last two years of, you know, long, it feels like long-term care was never more talked about than it was during the pandemic. So what lessons have come out of that? I think that there is a growing appreciation for the amount of um, pressure that we have been putting on the, the people working in the system. And that's why one of the recommendations that we continue to push is to really, really invest in our workforce, which is giving them more training, um, understanding the needs of their physical and mental health. Um, there are just so many things that, um, that we rely upon them to do this, and it, so it's valuing them. And it's not, uh, in, you know, they have been, uh, and we keep saying it over and over again, but it never seems to get better. I mean, these stories of ERs um, uh, not being able to take people or shutting down in parts of the province, you know, part of that is due because of the number of um, elderly folks that are still staying in hospital when they'd be better treated either at home with the home support or uh, in the community in a care home. Uh, but we just don't have the beds. We don't have the staff. And so uh, it's a, you know, all of these things are interrelated and that's why we're start having these daily headlines about uh, ERs that are overwhelmed. We're, we're just, we have too many people in the hospital that shouldn't be there. So what do we do then now? You talk about year, it takes a couple of years to even get one project moving forward. Are we in a position to start saying, yes, we're going to take this seriously? You know what? I, it, it, the line that we used in the, in the op-ed that's in the Vancouver Sun today um, under Terry Lake's byline is, is that this is not government's problem to fix, but society's um, uh, you know, uh, requirement that we all in, we all invest in this. We all lean in on this one. So that means we're going to have to bring in, 
you know, uh, all the innovation, um, looking at how we manage data, looking how we invest in, and bring in uh, private partners into the healthcare system to help uh, relieve some of the, the stress on the, and strain on the system. Um, so I think uh, what we need to hear from the public is, hey, guys, we need to get moving on, on starting to build these beds within, within these communities and get serious about that because it's having downward pressure on everybody who is going to use the healthcare system. So you're saying we need to, the public needs to put some more pressure on to get things moving. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we have a huge amount of respect for the families that um, are uh, attached to, to the care system. They've been really valuable voices, um, but we need to, them to sort of aim some of their attention to government decision makers and say, and you know, let their MLAs know that, hey, why don't we have enough beds in our community? What, what are we going to do to invest on that one? And that is the kind of information that gets eventually to the decision makers who are going to finally going to get some of these beds built. Did, did you hear more of that, though, from families? Families have been very vocal during the pandemic about, you know, their loved ones in long-term care. Have they found their voice? I think increasingly they are. We were seeing, you know, we're, uh, you know, the, the family council in, in care homes has, has been an important voice in terms of the, the sector. But I think that um, uh, a lot of times they've, they're very um, focused on the moment, like a, an issue around particular, uh, they're sort of seeing a staffing shortage in one care home, not realizing that this is sort of systemic. You know, we've got um, um, major, major pressures on parts of this province right now where we just don't have enough staff. So as a result, beds are not being opened, uh, and, and, and it has that trickle-down event. You know, I heard you talking to Vaughn Palmer last hour about housing. I mean, the fact that we don't have enough housing in communities uh, for workers, that we want to bring in nurses and care aides and people to take care of people, and they simply do not have enough housing. So that, that pressure starts to spill onto local government. So again, it's, it's, a, it's really a societal issue. We need to have all come together, and I think families are an incredibly important voice in that. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning, Mike. Great. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That's Mike Klassen, Vice President of Public Affairs for the BC Care Providers Association. Under uh, Terry Lake's byline there, they have a piece in the Vancouver Sun this morning, and that talks about what they need moving forward, what care providers, what the older population, the aging population needs moving forward. And it's just not happening. They want to see some more public pressure on that. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. All right, let's talk about real estate, shall we? Because there is no doubt that things are changing out there when it comes to buying a house. You're seeing listings that advertise new prices. You're seeing things slow down, definitely in some sectors. Uh, There is a lot of change happening. This week, we've had not one but two announcements about housing from Finance Minister Selena Robinson. The latest one has to do with a new home buyer consumer protection period. That's what they're calling it. A mandatory three-day period that gives a potential home buyer a chance to take some steps, like maybe really locking down that financing or, and this is a big one, arranging for a home inspection. Because remember, what we saw during the craziness and what we have seen, people forgo a home inspection when they're putting their subjects down because they just so desperately want to get this property. So this is all set to start in 2023 at the beginning of the year, but we thought let's find out how the industry is feeling about this. Trevor Kuch joins us now, CEO of the BC Real Estate Board. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So were you surprised to hear that it's a three-day cooling off period? 
Yeah, the announcement itself was not a surprise. We were, uh, we were, wa- uh, you know, waiting for what the policy, the legislation that was passed earlier this year uh, was empty. Um, so we were, we were certainly waiting as an industry to see what that uh, legislation would look like. Um, what was surprising was how little there was, uh, what, what the minister opted to choose uh, to populate that, that legislation uh, after receiving from their own independent regulator, or presumably independent regulator, the, the BC Financial Services Authority, um, 17 recommendations uh, earlier this year, uh, which was actually populated uh, a lot by our 34 recommendations that we put out prior to that. Um, through the BC Real Estate Association and the research that we did. So the minister had every opportunity to uh, provide a, a much more substantive uh, pr- uh, consumer protection policy uh, and opted for a very narrow scope that actually is going to be completely ineffective in the current market conditions. Okay, well, let's talk first about what the industry recommendations were. What do you think would have worked better? Sure. So uh, in our research, what we were looking at was a five-day pre-offer period. So um, to the the minister's credit and and to everybody, you know, everybody was on the same page with this. In the the market that we just experienced, we we were looking to give consumers time. We just wanted to give everybody a beat to take a breath and kind of consider all the options and make sure that the decisions that were being made were not being forced because we, we all know what kind of environment just happened. Um, buyers were feeling the pressure to do, to put in unconditional offers and those types of things. So really there was just this, this, it was about time. And so our research was showing and, and based on, you know, other jurisdictions throughout the world that, uh, giving that time before the offer is made rather than after is, is much more substantive. Having said that, when the BC Financial Services Authority came out with their recommendations of both a pre-offer period, which is our recommendation, and the cooling off period, this, this home buyer protection period, um, we, we redid our, went back to the industry and, and found that, okay, we can, we can live with that. We understand that, that in, the, in the bigger context of consumer protection, let's put all of the stops in place and make sure that people have, dependent on market uh, and market conditions, are being protected and have that time to consider. Um, so we were we were really okay with with what all the recommendations were coming from the BC Financial Services Authority, and again the minister really dropped the ball to not listen to their own regulator and and put in uh, you know the the, the comprehensive uh, uh, aspect of all of the consumer protection measures that were recommended. Okay, and what are you seeing out there, Trevor? Like, how did we get to the point where all of this was even necessary? Yeah, so and and there's a little misconception there, I think, to me around uh, the, the the term cooling off, because what people were kind of anticipating and the way that it was kind of understood was that this measure would actually help cool off the market. And that was never the intent. It wasn't the intent by the by the minister. It wasn't the intent by BCFSA or ourselves. Um, the idea was, again, to give the buyer or the consumer time to cool off. Uh, so, so that misconception uh, it, it w- was there. But what ended up happening, of course, with the increasing interest rates, we've all seen this in the market conditions now, is 
the market is cooling off, uh, you know, even aside from what, what this policy is, is doing. So what the intent was, was, you know, in a heated market when buyers didn't have that opportunity to, to give them that, that time. And now we don't need that anymore. What we're seeing in the marketplace is, and you pointed this out off the top, is, uh, you know, listings that are actually seeing price adjustments. We're seeing uh, uh, fewer or no multiple offer situations. We're not seeing this frenzy where buyers feel like they need to put in unconditional offers. And as a result, this particular policy to give buyers time is just going to be completely ineffective. Right. We may not need it right now, though, Trevor. But like, as we've seen with our market, things can heat up in a second. So is it fair to say that we may need it in the future? 100%. 100%. And, and we, we will, I just want to be really clear, we're not saying that we don't see the value in this. We, we've done our research, we've, we've, we've come around and supported it. But what we are saying is that it should have been a comprehensive package. There were, we've had 34 recommendations, BCFSA had 17 recommendations, and there was half of one recommendation that was, that was selected to, to come out. And, uh, and remember, this this does not apply to realtors and licensees and, and real estate professionals exclusively. This policy and legislation applies to every re- residential real estate transaction across the province. So if a family member is selling their home to another family member, they need to comply with this rescission period and, uh, and, and the home buyer protection period and, and all of the policy that, that surrounds that. And the minister has alluded to the fact, well, we'll still drip out some of these other, uh, you know, recommendations or, or potentially will. Well, that goes, again, against what the recommendations were from their own regulator who said, let's do it as a comprehensive package, because otherwise it just causes confusion. So now if we start, you know, implementing a five-day pre-offer period, as we recommended, then now all consumers all across the province have to understand what does that mean? It just, it pushes, it, it, it increases the chance for non-compliance um, and, and really goes against consumer protection altogether. It, it was really poorly implemented is, is our concern. Okay. So let me ask you this and you kind of referenced this earlier, but I'd like it if you could expand on it. What are you sure. seeing out there right now? Then you said that there's either fewer or perhaps no multiple offer situations. Now, has there been that much of a dramatic downturn in this short period of time? Yeah, the the um, the interest rates, as, as our chief economist at, at BCREA says, is a blunt tool. I mean, it 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 really does dramatically change the activity of buyers, and it doesn't mean that buyers aren't out there. Uh, our our advocacy efforts are still around increasing supply uh, in order to offset some of these market conditions. It is based on supply demand. Demand has waned because of increased interest rates, and this one percent. I, uh, in in July, really, uh, you know, kind of impacted that the most, and then now we're expecting another in September. Um, so uh, the the consumer is definitely um, affected, and and uh, their their activities are affected by the interest rates and and by that market activity, uh, which then trickles down, and and uh, so as a result, you see less buyer activity. Uh, we see increased in uh, number of listings coming on. That supply demand starts to balance out. And as a result, you just don't see that same frenzy. So, yes, there is definitely a shift in market conditions and, and, and in the way that uh, real estate is being transacted right now. Boy, that's so interesting. All right, Trevor, thank you. 
Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Anytime. That's Trevor Coote, CEO of the BC Real Estate Board, talking on the one hand about how things have dramatically changed in the real estate market, as you heard him describe there. But also, they are not happy with what was announced uh, yesterday from Finance Minister Selena Robinson in this home buyer protection plan. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.